0: Would you open God's precious holy word to 1 Samuel 13? The beginning of the legacy of Israel's first king, King Saul. It's not good, <laughs> it's a bad one. The poor old guy seems to go from bad to worse. A lot of spiritual lessons that are given when one studies the overall context and contrasts Saul with David. I've said this before, but with what's on my mind, it bears repeating because there's an added element. When I preached through the Bible the first time I was a very young preacher and all that came to the forefront of my mind was the inerrancy of scripture. I I was struggling in the early days of studying in the Hebrew and the Greek and didn't have a computer. But I had those thousands of volumes in my library all around and I would come to these passages where certain people would say, because they were only dependent on a translation, and translations many times can be unfortunate, that people would say that there were discrepancies in the scripture or whatever. And I would spend a great deal of time when I would come to those particular passages, studying them, comparing, contrasting, looking deeply as I could into the original text. And then drawing upon books and, that I had as well as journals to which I was uh, subscribed back in those days. And I came to realize that all of these so-called discrepancies or whatever or where it appeared that the Bible... Uh, disputed with itself in some other way was not true at all. It's it it it, it just it takes it takes rational thought, reason, and study. It takes a little study because you have to you have to subtract yourself from translations and from from the heuristics and biases of of uh, people who attack the Scriptures and so forth. You just have to let the Scripture stand for itself in its original text. And so, preaching through the Bible the first time, my mind became more and more focused on how infallible and inerrant and perfect the Scriptures are. I began preaching through the second time, and all I could see was the doctrine of Christ All the way through the Bible, I saw Christ everywhere in the greater contexts. Christ, his ministry, his person, uh, how he proved these things when, when he became, when he was incarnate, when he came in the Gospels. And I saw then how the Scriptures, to me, in my second time through just revealed Christ everywhere. Not long ago, I started the third time through, and all I could see was the sovereignty of God, the all-powerful, sovereign grace of God. But in recent, in recent times, Resting upon the truth of the sovereignty of God in all things and seeing that it's taught everywhere, oftentimes overlooked. And a scripture that someone has seen or read or heard hundreds of times because, it, because of its familiarity, the truth of God's sovereignty is sometimes lost. In the, in, the, in the deep truth of the particular passage. But now I'm also beginning to see something emerge as far as I am concerned in my preaching and my studies through the Bible during this third time through. And that is, uh, to use a single word, faithfulness. We have such a difficult time getting self out of the way and just depend on God. I'm a child of God. I'm in a mess. I'm in a child of God. I don't know what to do. I'm, in a, chi- I'm a child of God. I'm, I don't know really where I'm headed. I'm confused. Uh, I don't have an answer. I don't have a clear direction. A wise preacher once told me, when you don't know what to do, the best thing to do is nothing. Nothing. Don't let yourself, don't insert yourself in the equation. You wait on God. God's never late. He's always on time. And so as I I see the sovereignty of God emerge in every passage of Scripture that I am preaching through in this third time through the Bible, in all these years, I'm beginning to see also the importance of from a man's perspective of faithfulness. God is sovereign, so rest in that. Understand the scriptures. There are principles of life. God, you know, he, 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 he gives us these principles and they're often revealed in characters in the Bible or, or adventures or whatever And within those adventures, those stories, those accounts, you will often see the guy who was unfaithful and what a mess he made, the guy who was faithful. And finally, it it comes to pass in the favor of faithfulness. Always does. God is undefeated in, in that respect. We start out as young believers and we still have too much of ourselves. In our actions and in our behavior. But if we mature and develop the way that we should in Christ, then we become we are disciples. That's what we're called in the Bible. We are disciples, We are learners, which means that we study, we're taught, and we grow in that, and we, we grow spiritually, especially. And then across the course of life, we have experiences. In which the Lord has into which the Lord has guided us, and while we're there, we we can so often come to a, a dead end or whatever, and finally get to those experiences where we say, you know, this is so bad, and I am so deep in this mess. My only look is the up look. I don't have any outlook. And of course, that's where God does his best work. And I, I, can, I can say from experience that uh, when God carries you through having rested and reposed in, in His sovereign power and knowing that He has a purpose and a plan, He never makes a mistake. He carries us through that first thing and you think that it's the worst thing you'll ever face. Until you face the next thing that's even worse than the previous thing. But you've learned a little lesson in the first one. And that is, you'd better trust God. And when you don't know what to do, don't do anything and just wait on God. He carries you through that one, which at that point seems to be the most difficult thing you've ever faced. And you think in your mind, there, nothing could ever be more difficult than this. Something else comes along in the due course of time. And so the trials and the testings come and God always reveals Himself and carries us through when we are totally and absolutely dependent on Him. Abram is a case in point who mixed who mixed human intuition with God's sovereign plan. That always is a mess. So he, he listens to his wife who draws upon the tradition of the day, namely that Abram could take Sarah's, uh, Sarah's handmaid, Hagar, and he could have a child by her handmaid, and legally it would be the mistress's, it would be the, the, the lady of the house, it would be her child legally. So this is the way, as an old woman, she says, this is how God going to work this out. Now, that's not what God said. That's what she said. So the world has teetered on the brink of destruction and nuclear war, and it's always confusing to the nations, the things that go on in the Middle East. Because Abram, Abraham had that adventure with Hagar, and the Arab nation was born. So later, Isaac, the son of promise, is born to two very old people because God is all powerful. I'm saying all that to say this the people chose Saul to be their king on the basis of how he looked, he was the most handsome of all of the men. And he was taller than anybody, head and shoulders above everybody, the Bible says. Very tall, powerful. He's just an old farm boy. But he hadn't grown up in the shadow of the, of the priesthood. He wasn't, he didn't know his Bible that well. Had not been trained in the law And in the ways in which he should have been trained. And so he went from nothing to everything. Just like that. Just because of how he looked. There was no vetting of what kind of spiritual life this guy had. How he had lived his life before the Lord. It wasn't anything like that. He just looked good. And because of the way he looked, he was selected as the king. The first king. Now it seems to me that Saul was not that well schooled in the law of Moses which means especially when you think of uh, when you think of the lives of of uh, well you can you can start all the way back with Adam's failure failing to obey the Lord you can move past the fall of man and you can look at all of the contrasting characters that are in the Scriptures just in the book of Genesis. Especially when you get to Abraham and Abraham's call to faithfulness, but how Abraham failed so miserably several times, but each time led him to live a stronger life of faith until the greatest trial that he would face according to the scriptures, was when he was required to offer his only son, Isaac. Then there was the account of Isaac, his faithfulness in the Lord to bring him a bride. Then there was Jacob, who started off not too well. But when he came to some really bad times... He had enough spiritual sense to call upon the God of his fathers, Abraham and Isaac. He had enough sense to call on him. And the Lord dealt with him, spoke to him, and then finally met him face to face on Peniel, which means face to face. I saw God face to face, and there they wrestled. And his name was changed. Things were different then. And he went from being Jacob to Israel. Then, of course, you have the story of Moses, his failures, and then his successes and his growing faith, and then the terrible mistake that he made and his inability to cross over into the land of Canaan. Now, you can go on and on from there. But if you consider the times now of the judges from which Israel had just emerged, you have the first king. It had been well known and it had been taught by the trusted prophet Samuel that the king and the people were always responsible to Yahweh, the God of Israel. And if there was failure, it would mean failure for both people and king. So it was a theocracy. It was the kind of thing where there was a a tight relationship between the prophet, the priest, and the king. Now, the king didn't know, obviously, Saul didn't know that much about uh, the priesthood. He had a surface knowledge, apparently, of offerings, but he had grown up in a farm raising and trading mules and this kind of, that, with donkeys, that was, his, that was his thing. He just happened to be somewhere one day when all the people said, that's the guy we want. So he's, he's spiritually unprepared and he does what he has always done all of his life. He depends upon himself. He has a An appearance in some ways simply because of the direct teaching of Samuel and, and no other reason that, that he, you know, he, he wants to be as religious as he needs to be but he didn't really understand the religion of his people he didn't really understand the law or the importance of obedience and if you don't understand that then you don't have an appreciation of the almightiness of God so this is where Saul is it's kind of pitiful to call on a man who just isn't spiritually equipped or prepared to do a work that rests upon a spiritual relationship with God. It's a theocracy. It's not a monarchy or anything like that. So Saul impressed the people when he responded to a cry for help. We saw that time before last, you know, and then Samuel last time makes his resignation as a judge and gives deference to uh, Saul as the king. The era of the judges comes to an end, and the time, the times of the kings for Israel begins. But Samuel gave them a warning. And we saw that last time in his farewell address as an elder, as a prophet of the people, as a judge. He told the people plainly, you people sinned when you demanded a king like the rest of the nations. It was a grievous sin. You dismissed Yahweh from being your king in your heart. Now be very careful, he said to them. You can read it in the previous chapter. We saw it last time. Be very careful, or this can bring you to ruin. You see, the implication was, you followed your heart. You did not follow the direction of God in selecting a king. You just did the man thing. You didn't do the God thing. You did the thing that was important to me. A lot of people go to church and just say, well, what's in it for me? What can I get out of, you know, instead of thinking I'm going to have to offer to the Lord my heart, my life, my service. And I'm going to have to be recharged in a time of fellowship and Bible study and worship. The people were all about themselves. As a matter of fact, the book of Judges ends like this. Every man did that which was right in his own eyes. An, an awful era of selfish of, of, of selfish works and selfish behavior. And it was a time of, of shame and darkness for the people of Israel. They're still in that, but now they got what they wanted. They got a king like everybody else had. Saul is bolstered in his ego, by, by defeating the, the Ammonites, you remember that a couple of chapters back, and the people are so excited and are so impressed. So now Saul leaves the farm and starts to rule as a king. Now, what are his personal resources? He was a farmer. He raised donkeys. He was a donkey farmer. May I may I use the King James language? He was the ruler of a bunch of asses. That didn't seem to stop when he became the king of another kind of donkey. So he's focused on himself and he's thinking, man, this this, just feels great. Every leader, whether he likes it or not, builds a legacy. According to how he responds from within himself to the problems that he's going to face. Every leader faces problems and there are always solutions if you wait on the Lord The Lord is the problem solver. Okay, so now, here is the beginning of Saul's legacy in 1 Samuel 13. Number one, war. Saul was a year in his reign, and he reigned two years over Israel. Now, this is a, this is a, that that Hebrew, what we see is verse one, Aleph is a very confusing Hebrew text. It literally, it literally could read like this. Saul was one year old when he began to be king. And when he was two years old, he was king over Israel. Well, you know, that's not the proper translation. So you really pour over the Hebrew text and most likely, now I'm going to guess that your translation probably says something like he was 30 years old or something like that, and he reigned for 40 years. Is that about right? Is that about what you're tra- seeing it what it, it's not what it says. Most likely what it means is that he ruled over Benjamin for one year, and you see this in other part of the texts. And then All of Israel came under his reign after two years. But however you translate the Hebrew line there, that's not really the important thing other than to come away with the truth that he, at verse 2, is ruling over Israel and not just over Benjamin. That's the main point. And the 30 years old and all that, that comes from the Septuagint Which is not the Hebrew, original Hebrew. It's the Greek. It's the Greek translation of the original Hebrew text. Now, all of that, who cares? Verse 2. Saul chose for himself 3,000 from Israel. They were with Saul, 2,000 in Michmash, and in the mountain of Bethel. And 1,000 were with Jonathan. That's his son, Saul's son. In Gibeah of Benjamin. And he sent the rest of the people, every man, To his tents or their tents. And Jonathan smote the officer of the Philistines who was in Geba. And the Philistines heard, and Saul sounded the shofar throughout all the land, saying, Let the Hebrews hear. Okay. The Philistines were very powerful, the Israelites were backward. This is the first time in their history since the time of Joshua that they had actually come together and would raise up arms against an enemy. They did such a great thing with the Ammonites, but you see the Ammonites are not the Philistines. Let's 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 put it in a in modern, let's see. Oh, okay, here's one of the superpowers, Russia, the United States, or China, whatever. This huge, technologically advanced, all of the most modern weapons, well organized in the, in the military such that nobody within any, within any region at all would test the might of the military, of the Philistines. They were it. They had iron They had iron weapons. They were technologically advanced. They had the most advanced weapons in the world. Israel didn't have anything. Saul had a sword of iron. Jonathan had a sword of iron. Everybody else just had farm implements. Maybe a homemade bow and arrow. Just nothing comparable to the well-organized military of the Philistines. Okay? So it's like... Jonathan goes and he tugs on Superman's cape. He surprises to keep. Now the Israelites had a lot of people. The 12 tribes. There were 3 million or more of them. But they had never come together as a people. Until now. So the Philistines kept garrisons. All they, they, you know, all around forts. They had garrisons or forts, and they were they were uh, populated. They were by by well trained Philistine, well armed Philistine soldiers. And what happens is Jonathan catches a garrison by surprise, and he goes in and he defeats this garrison. Okay, that's like saying, uh, let me think. That's like saying, let me think of a good one here. I'm, I'm thinking of a, a passive place, I don't know. The Cayman Islands. That's like saying the Cayman Islands looked up and shot down a supply plane of the United States. It's kind of like a gnat in your ear, okay? It was, humi- it was more humiliating than anything else to the Philistines. It was a big deal to the Israelites because now somebody was bold enough to try to get these people out of the way. You remember I told you last time how cruel they were uh, to the Israelites and stealing their food and their crops and practically enslaving them and making them live like slaves and making them live at the lowest plane of society. Well, when it happened, Saul was all happy, so he sounded the trumpet, the shofar, throughout all the land. Let the Hebrews hear this. Now, why, does, why doesn't he say Israelites? Hey, but, well, suppose you are a an ethnic group of people and people who thought of themselves as higher status called you a particular word all the time this is the case of the israelites in egypt The term of disdain was to call them Hebrews. If you wanted to to mistreat and try to humiliate an Israelite, you just sort of spit at him and call him a Hebrew and don't acknowledge him as an Israelite. The words are very different. Saul uses the word to stir the people up. (laughs) The H word, I guess, is what we would call it. Let the Hebrews hear what just happened. And all Israel heard saying, Saul has smitten the officer of the Philistines. And also that Israel has become hateful to the Philistines. And the people gathered after Saul to Gilgal. At this point, everything is fine. Oh, look what we did. This is what we have done under our great king. Well, the Philistines didn't like it. The Philistines gathered to wage war with Israel. <laughs> Thirty thousand chariots, six thousand riders, that's cavalrymen, and people as numerous as the sand on the seashore. And they went up and camped in Mechmasha to the east of Bethavan. And the men of Israel saw that they were in a mess, in straits, in a strait, for the people were hard-pressed. So what did they do? <laughs> they went and hid. They hid in caves and in thickets, in the rocky crags and in towers and in the pits. And some Hebrews crossed the Jordan to the land of Gad and Gilead. But Saul was still in Gilgal, and all the people hurried after him. So there were some that came to Saul. But the rest of them, when they saw the force of the Philistines, ran away and hid. Well, his first legacy is war that was not well thought out, and neither and neither was wisdom to go to war sought out before the Lord. Now remember, Samuel in chapter 11, had warned them, "You'd better stay with Yahweh. You'd better listen to Yahweh. Or it will turn out bad for both king and people. You asked for this guy. Don't forget that. That's what uh, Samuel told them. Part two of his legacy is foolishness. If you go back to chapter 10 and all, you'll remember that Samuel had told Saul, you wait for me seven days. Now he was the prophet. God had said to the people, That whatever Samuel said was coming from God. You'll remember that. And Samuel proved it. God proved it. He affirmed it with with great signs. So Samuel was the was the voice piece of God, the spokesman of God. Seven days. Don't do anything. I'll be there. Saul waited seven days to the appointed time, which Samuel had set. Samuel didn't come to Gilgal and the people started running away. Okay. So he had this, he had this army left, but after seven days, they started disappearing. They were leaving. They were saying, this ain't going to work. Saul said, now this is what Samuel was supposed to do. The word of God, of course, was very stringent about the priesthood and the offering of offerings. Saul said, bring near to me the burnt offering and the peace offering. And he offered up the burnt offering. He was the king. He was neither prophet nor priest. God did not speak to him about doing the things of a prophet or of a priest. Later, David faces something of the same thing, but the Lord approves it. However, here, this is not the man after God's heart. So he just, he just without, without any patience at all, without any faithfulness at all, without any kind of a spiritual depth at all said, bring me the offering. I'm going to take care of this. My army is running away and we have to take care of this business before we can do what we have to do. And it was when he finished offering up the burnt offering that, behold, Samuel came, and Saul went out toward him to greet him. Samuel said, What have you done? Saul said, For I saw that the people had scattered from me, and you didn't come at the appointed time, and the Philistines are gathered in Mi'kmaq. Okay, so it was everybody's fault but his. Look at it it's the people's fault who were leaving. It's the prophet's fault who was a little late and it's the Philistines' fault who are coming after him. So I made a move. I made a decision. And I said, now the Philistines will come against me to Gilgal and I've not yet made supplication before Yahweh. And I forced myself to do this. (laughs) It was hard. (laughs) But I thought your Bible may say I was compelled or something to but the literal meaning is I forced myself. And I offered up the burnt offering. Samuel said to Saul. You. Are a fool. That's what he says to him. You have not observed the commandment. Of Yahweh. the, The Lord your God. You have not observed the commandment of Yahweh. Your God. Which he commanded you. For Now. Yahweh would have established your kingdom over Israel forever. If you'd have just had a little patience. You know Gideon took 300 against much more, a much bigger force than that. He, he didn't learn the lessons of the faithfulness of God. So he had no faithfulness. You've done foolishly. You disregarded the word of God which he commanded if you'd have done the right thing Yahweh would have established your kingdom over Israel forever and today we would be looking for the son of Saul to come instead of the son of David but Saul was a fool He pushed forward on his own, made his own decision. This won't be the first time that he messes up doing this. Without any spiritual depth, without any recognition of the power of Yahweh, without any any observance of the word of God, he just did it on his own. If you would have just been A spiritual man. Yahweh would have established your kingdom over Israel forever. But now. Your kingdom. Shall not continue. You see this. This was the end. Of Saul as a king. He doesn't accept it just yet. But it will happen. He's like a chicken with his head cut off. Yahweh has sought for himself a man after his heart. And Yahweh has appointed him to be a ruler over his people. For you have not kept that which Yahweh commanded you. So there's going to be this little boy out there and he doesn't even know. He's writing his Psalms and singing to the Lord And he is leading his sheep with love and concern and loves them so much he would stand between them and a bear or a lion. Didn't matter. He was being developed to be a pastor of his people. He didn't know it. Samuel didn't know who it was. But the Lord had spoken to Samuel and said, God has chosen a man. After his heart. And you're not that man. You're not after the heart of God. You're after the heart of Saul. Samuel rose and went up from Gilgal to Gibeah of Benjamin. And Saul counted the people who were present with him about 600 men. Part three of his legacy: trouble. Trouble's going to follow this guy from now on until he's done. Saul and his son Jonathan and the people who were present with them staying in Geba of Benjamin while the Philistines were encamped in Michmash. And the raiders emerged from the camp of the Philistines in three companies. One company turned to the road leading to Ophrah, to the land of Shual. The one company turned to the road leading to Bethlehem. And the one company turned to the road leading to the border which overlooks the valley of the Zeboim toward the wilderness that, that was a reference to several city-states of, of Gentiles. Now not a smith was found in all the land of Israel. As many smiths as there are in the world, there were none found in Israel. For the Philistines said, lest the Hebrews make sword or spear, so they If there were any blacksmiths, whatever, if there were any of those in the land of Israel, they forcefully took them and made them serve the Philistine military effort because they could could melt melt the, uh, the metal and they could forge it and put it together and make it what they wanted to make it. So they wouldn't allow this among the Israelites. And all Israel went down to the land of the Philistines to sharpen each man his plowshare, his coulter, his axe, and his mattock. Ox goad. And an ox goad was important back in the days of the judges in the hand of a right man. So they were totally helpless. They couldn't make their own weapons And if they had brass weapons, the brass weapons would break when the brass was struck by the iron. A brass shield could not stop the steel-tipped spear or arrow. They were totally helpless. They couldn't make their own weapons. There was nothing they could do. They were dependent upon the Philistines. And now they've angered the Philistines. There was a file for the mattocks and for the coulters and for the three-pronged pitchforks and for the axes to set the goad. It was a new day of war. It was on the day of war. Neither sword nor spear was found in the possession of all the people who were with Saul and Jonathan. But Saul and Jonathan, his son, each had an iron sword. And the garrison of the Philistines went out to the other side of Michmash. Well, the chapter stops there, telling us that Saul made a move without the leadership of the Lord. It was the wrong move. Saul tried to be religious without understanding even what he was doing before the Lord, and it cost him his kingdom. And Saul had angered the people who could literally slaughter Israel. They had them outnumbered and they had the superior weapons. And so it ends here and the story will develop. The the main thing we look at is how Yahweh preserves his people. Even though they had a very foolish king, very selfish and self-centered Man, a a man of the flesh, the garrison of the Philistines went out to the other side of Michmash. Well, we'll pick up this story from there next time and we'll have our deacon prayer time.